Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Everyone here in the Hayek Auditorium, everybody watching online, uh, and everybody following on Twitter using hashtag WWFSchool. Hashtag WWFSchool. Uh, by the way, hashtag WWFSchool is also the hashtag for all our public school conflict tweets. So we run a public schooling conflict battle map. And every time we find a conflict, we tweet about it. So you can also follow that on WWF School, hashtag WWF School. Uh, and now, just as a note, we have updated that website with latest conflicts and the Twitter feed. So if you tweet using that, you can go right to the page and see your tweet come up. And you can uh, feel like you had two seconds well spent. Um, my name is Neil McCluskey, and I am the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at Cato. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's discussion, which tackles what I think is sort of one of the great under-examined education conundrums, which is how do you prepare diverse children for citizenship when there are myriad opinions about all sorts of matters about which adult citizens disagree? Uh, and to tackle that, I think we have a really outstanding panel uh, assembled today to expertly guide our discussion and see if she can keep our discourse civil. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Valerie Strauss. Uh, she's a Washington Post education reporter, but you probably know her better as the person who presides over the Post's highly influential answer sheet blog. Uh, she really needs no introduction, I think, to education policy followers. Uh, so thanks, Valerie, and let's see how easy it is to keep debates over contentious issues like this is from getting ugly. And as a test, <laughs> as a test to see how well you can do, uh, I brought something that just last week launched threatened lawsuits against uh, schools for their draconian or, or eminently reasonable. Who knows? But some would say draconian policies. And that's a fidget spinner. Yeah. Oh. Has anyone ever seen a fidget spinner before? Oh, I it love spins. That. Um, and as you know, there's a National Fidget Spinner Association which has threatened lawsuits against public schools for confiscating fidget spinners from students. So as a test of your ability to moderate, let's see how you handle my playing with this fidget spinner potentially at any time during this debate. Be careful. Be careful. It may bother me. And so with that, it's all yours. Thank you very much, Neil. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation, I think. The first thing I've been asked to do is ask you to turn off your cell phones if you have already not done that. Um, as Neil said, we're here to talk about something that may be more important today as it ever has been. Uh, can and should and, and if so, how do public schools uh, teach kids to deal with contentious, controversial issues in a smart, thoughtful way without proselytizing, without um, trying to persuade them one way or the other and to think through issues analytically. So if before we start, let's separate what we're talking, establish what we're talking about, separate controversy from controversy. As, as Neil suggested, everything in education is controversial, absolutely everything. Mm. Even things that don't seem simple. 100 plus 100 is what? Well, you can add it up the way we all probably were taught. Or you can make a grid that goes something like this and who knows and everybody fights over it. You know, in phys ed, do you, competitive or not competitive? That's a big issue. Do you, do you measure BMI or is that a terrible thing to do to kids? Like I said, there is nothing that's not controversial. But here we're talking about the most contentious of the contentious subjects. Subjects like sex ed, climate change, President Trump's tweets. Are these legitimate topics to talk about in school? If so, how? That's contentious too. 
So this is the subject not only of this discussion, but of a book co-authored by one of our panelists to, to my left, Jonathan Zimmerman, a professor of education history at the University of Pennsylvania. The book is called The Case for Contention, Teaching Controversial Issues in American Schools, and it provides not only a historical look at how public school teachers have addressed controversial issues in the past, but it also explains the impediments that teachers face today and provides some suggestions for policy and practice for teachers in the future. Joining him to talk about it are, to my further left, Ashley Rogers Berner, Deputy Director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. She is the author of the book, No One Way to School, Pluralism and American Public Education, which argues for a change in the very definition of public schooling and for a restructuring so that state governments fund and hold accountable a wide variety of schools, including religious schools, without operating them. It's a very intriguing idea she's got. We are also joined by Elizabeth Anderson Warden, to my right, an associate professor at the School of Education at AU, American University. She authored the book, National Identity and Educational Reform, Contested Classrooms. It's an examination of national identity in the state of Moldova and the government's controversial effort there to try to cultivate a shared sense of national belonging through history books. Finally, we've got Neil McCluskey, as you know. He is the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here and a prolific author. Um, and sometimes Neil and I agree with, on things, and sometimes we, we don't, but I always like to hear what he has to say. Um, so this is how we're going to do it. Each panelist will talk briefly, make some points about the subject. We'll talk a little bit amongst ourselves, but mostly we'd like you to engage with the, with the uh, panels, panelists and so we can have a, a, a room-wide discussion. So think about the kinds of things you want to talk about as they're speaking. So I think we'll start with Jonathan Zimmerman. Thanks a lot, and uh, uh, thanks, to, thanks to Neil for organizing all of this, and to Cato for hosting it. Um, uh, Val mentioned this is playing off a book that I wrote, um, and uh, the the very first book that I wrote, uh, I was a I was a naive person, a naif, and somebody sent me this 800 number that was allegedly like a publisher's clearinghouse that would tell you how your book was doing. And again, being a younger man, I actually called this number, and of course I I received the the robo voice, you know, the computer voice, and it said, "Good morning, you have sold." Zero <laughs> books today. Uh, and I, that wasn't getting me any closer to God, so I haven't done it with any of the subsequent books. Uh, but I'm always <laughs> delighted when anybody uh, uh, other than blood relative shows an interest in, uh, in something that I've written. Um, and speaking of blood relatives, one of the themes of the book is that schools have to teach people how to behave in civic ways, um, especially at this moment in history. They have to teach people how to deliberate across their differences in a mutually respectful way. Um, but I also understand that schools aren't the primary educators um, uh, in America or anywhere, that, that family is, and especially parents. And um, uh, from an extremely young age, I believe I was taught how to do this, how to listen to people, um, how to discuss and debate with them, how to disagree in a decent way. And that's because of my parents, uh, Paul and Margot, who are here. Uh, so thank you so much for that. <laughs> right. um, 
Uh, very, very briefly, the book, of course, is called The Case for Contention. And it tries to make the case for teaching issues that are controversial in schools head on, but for avoiding ones that aren't. What's an example? What is a controversy? Well, a controversy is a subject that the most informed people in a society disagree about. So to take one of the most contentious examples, is there, under our definition, a controversy over whether human beings are warming the Earth? We say no. We do understand that there are millions of people who deny that fact. But the most informed people in our society agree on it. And we don't feel that it's a controversy in the sense of one that we would like addressed in schools. Now, what to do about that fact is enormously controversial. Um, uh, what, what efforts or measures, governmental or otherwise, should be put in place? Who should sustain the cost of those measures? Everyone disagrees about that. And of course, there should be discussion of that. To take another example, is it a controversy about whether vaccines cause autism. I do understand that there are perhaps millions of people who believe that to be the case, but the most informed people do not. So we do not believe that we should debate in schools whether, vaccine, whether vaccines cause autism. Um, now, um, you know, how, how to distribute vaccines in a more equitable way, um, uh, how to create social structures to serve autistic people, those are all extremely worthy of debate. Um, they're what we call controversy, but we do think that you have to discriminate between those two things. Um, what else do we think we need to do? Well, there are a few other things. Um, first of all, we think that teachers often need to represent sides that aren't being represented in a real controversy. One of the things we discovered about our society in the past 20, 40 years is that we've segregated ourselves ideologically. That is, it's less likely than in prior eras that you will live near or know somebody who disagrees with you. And because our communities themselves have become essentially ideological islands, that makes it ever more likely that a classroom will be composed of students that all agree with each other. On a matter that's truly controversial, like, for example, what to do about climate change, if a legitimate viewpoint is not being represented in a classroom, it becomes the job of the teacher to represent it. Um, otherwise, the students will get the misapprehension, the misunderstanding that all reasonable and good people agree with them, uh, which they don't. Um, uh, the next and related stricture we argue is, and this is the hardest one of all really, is you can't impose your point of view on students. There's a lot of pseudo-discussion that goes on in education, where we, that is, we educators, we teachers, say we want to debate, but really what we want is our point of view to win. Uh, uh, and this, of course, my students have learned to call Zimmerman's fallacy. And I'm sure you've heard of Zimmerman's fallacy because it's so famous. Uh, Zimmerman's fallacy goes like this. If everybody really thought and considered an issue, unbridled by cant and propaganda, they'd agree with me. <laughs> um, this is hugely cynical. Um, it's bipartisan. 
But people that engage in, in, in Zimmerman's fallacy don't really actually believe in the process of democratic education, which is premised on the faith, and it is a faith, that people of equal reason and equal goodwill do disagree with each other, will disagree with each other. The worst idea on the land, and it is bipartisan, is that somebody that you disagree with is either morally or cognitively warped. Um, uh, and our schools have to fight against that. Um, uh, and finally, the last stricture is they have to teach people how to gauge in these disagreements in civil ways. And this is a really hard one in our current moment because so much of the debate and dialogue that you see on the airwaves, on the internet, is the opposite of that. My wife and I will watch things on TV at night that are billed as a debate, and we'll look at each other and we'll say, that was a debate? That was not a debate. That was just dueling, screaming, talking heads. Um, screaming past each other, never actually engaging with each other. Um, and indeed, it's become even more hard because the person we elected as president has flouted many of those civic norms in the way that he has behaved. So I keep telling teachers when I meet with them that somehow you have to communicate to your students that it's perfectly fine to vote for Donald Trump, whether you did or not. Everyone in this country gets to vote for whom they want. And if you or your family want to vote for Donald Trump, you should. You can. But here's what you can't do. You can't behave like him. Not on my watch, all right? Not in my classroom. You can vote for him. You can like him. You can defend him. You can applaud him. You can advocate for him. You cannot behave like him insofar as he has flouted basic norms of civic discourse. Now, why doesn't this kind of, uh, let's just say, education, this kind of pedagogy and controversial issues happen very often in schools? By the way, it doesn't. It does happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. I know that I had teachers who did it, um, and I'm sure that you did too. But the research on classroom behavior is pretty clear. Um, even though we now have many schools that have policies that explicitly favor or even recommend the teaching of controversial issues, when you actually go inside classrooms, you find that mm -hmm. it doesn't happen that often. Um, why doesn't it? Well, um, very briefly, and then I'll be quiet, um, the first reason actually has to do with the history of our schools, um, which were not set up to engage kids in controversial issues. One of the greatest myths about the founding of schools in this country, um, the creation of the common school system, is that the common schools existed to engage kids in debate. Quite the contrary. Um, Horace Mann, who was the leading figure in that movement, famously said that as soon as controversial issues, political issues, got into the classrooms, that the whole system would fail. And the reason is parents would stop um, uh, agreeing to bond issues and other kinds of taxes for schools. Um, if they heard that the schools were debating what he called the contentious issues of, of the day, um, uh, they would refuse to fund the schools. So there's a kind of burden of history that works against this. 
Um, I do want schools to address controversial issues, but I can't engage in myth-making by pretending that they were created to do so. It's actually the opposite. Um, second, when you actually survey teachers about their professional preparation, it turns out that most of them are not prepared to lead discussions about controversial issues. When I say prepared, I mean it wasn't a part of their formal training. Um, no class or professor addressed this question, said, okay, you're gonna have to deal with the question of abortion or the question of capital punishment in your classroom. How are you going to do it? Um, uh, thirdly, teachers have lots of other things they have to do. Uh, especially in the age of high-stakes testing and accountability. If you are being evaluated based on your kid's performance on a bubble test in which they have to give, quote, the right answer, are you going to spend a lot of time debating questions that don't have one? I think you're probably not. Um, I, I, uh, fourth, and this is the most depressing thing, Teachers actually don't have many legal protections for their own speech. Courts have radically reduced the protections that teachers have to express points of view and debate them in classrooms. Um, so uh, the most vivid example uh, uh, is a teacher whose name was Deborah Meyer, um, Deborah Mayer, who in 2003, right before we invaded Iraq, um, led a uh, uh, a lesson in, in her uh, middle school um, from Time for Kids, which was uh, the di district-sanctioned current events magazine, uh, in which they were discussing an article about protest against the war. You'll recall during the buildup, during the preamble to the invasion, when it was clear that we were probably going to do it, there were protests everywhere, including here on the Mall. And there was a story about it which featured a picture of the protest on the mall. And someone in the class said, Ms. Mayer, have you ever attended a protest? And she said, yes, as a matter of fact, I drove by one the other day in Bloomington and I honked my horn in support. Fired. Uh, and uh, a federal court upheld the firing. Um, and please understand, that comment and that behavior would not have gotten her fired in many parts of the United States but it did where she was teaching. We live in a country where schools are still locally governed, and so there's gonna be enormous variation in what teachers are allowed to do and say. But I think the point is the courts have pared back their protection in what they can do and say. And then finally, and this is really a question, I don't know that Americans actually want what I'm recommending. The great tension and the great irony in the scholarship I've done is most of it is a kind of plea for what I call democratic education, which is dialogic, which is centered on debate, which is demanding that we engage our young people in the contentious public issues of their day. But does the demos want democratic education? Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I suspect that many parts of the demos don't. Uh, and I don't know what to do about that. Mm. So thank you. Thank you. Ashley, um, would you like to talk a little bit about the subject, perhaps even bring in a little bit about the theme of your book and, and how it may play into this? Sure. And, um, and then we'll... 
move on. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the panel, and I appreciate John's comments. I thought your book was important and interesting. And I had, uh, before I went and got my doctorate, I taught comparative religion and ethics. And I've, I've taught comparative religion and ethics in a private school and in a public university that was comprised of first-generation students. And it is challenging, and it is rewarding. Um, I suppose my first comment to your, to your book would simply be, I don't think it goes far enough in asking for controversy. I would say we need to be able to teach the next generation not only about current controversies as you define them, but why we have the controversies, which is that we really have um, self-evident truths that differ from one another. In a democratic culture, we have different answers to the questions of meaning and purpose and, and also to the question of the just society. So your, your idea of debating what to do about climate change touches on the question of the relationship between the individual, the society, and the state. And teaching students how to think deeply about those differences is almost, I think, prior to engaging in a current uh, contemporary uh, debate um, and, and could potentially carry those students, provide resources for them in future controversies that we cannot even imagine from our perspective here. So yes, and um, I also share your passion for bringing these resources into our school system and also an agnosticism about what's possible. I will say, and this does touch on my book, I think there are two primary obstacles to doing what Jonathan's talking about and what I certainly support. Uh, the first is the content of American education. There was no golden age to what people knew, but it certainly is the case that 100, 120 years ago, an educated person was expected to know certain things about history, certain things about political theory. And teachers, if you look at the exams that teachers had to pass to enter into normal school, they were incredibly rigorous. And we have churned since the early 20th century to, to privilege skills over content, over knowledge. Diane Ravitch's book, Left Back, is brilliant on this. She talks about how the first generation parents really wanted more rigorous content. And they were sort of told it's more about learning to learn and skills or whatever the, the prevailing dominant view was. So we, we have now many generations, including of teachers, who haven't really engaged these deep questions and these deep conflicts. So bringing that content back into teacher preparation and in-service is, I think, would have, to ha would have to happen, providing the resources for teachers. And the second barrier is the cultural habit of uniformity in our public school system. So as Jonathan pointed out, the public school system as it's constituted now was created not only to prevent debate about politics, but to prevent cultural diversity from disrupting what was perceived as the American democracy. So the Protestant majority, which did not buy into Horace Mann in the 1840s because the idea of a uniform school system violated their notions of local control and diversity and religious freedom and so on, when waves of Catholic immigrants hit our shores 
in the 1840s and 50s. The nativist Protestant majority took over the state houses and had a strong presence in Congress. And the end result was that we defunded Catholic schools, Jewish schools, diverse schools that we used to, we used to fund. In fact, uniform, uniformity is written into some 12 of our state constitutions. So we have come to think of schooling as somehow one thing, uniform and neutral. And that, I think, prevents us from having conversations about deep difference as well. And by contrast, other countries, most democracies, fund all different kinds of schools. They fund The Netherlands funds 36 different kinds. The UK, where I spent quite a bit of time, funds Jewish schools, Catholic schools, socialist schools, and so on. So I think those, two, those are two very important cultural habits that we have of fleeing content in general and of also of not being comfortable with diversity and perceiving it as a threat. And I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Elizabeth? Great. Thanks so much, Neil, for organizing this panel and inviting me. I'm so excited to be here. And I'm hoping to bring international perspectives to the panel today. I don't work on schools in the US. Uh, my work is focused abroad. And as Valerie mentioned, my book from 2014 was about teaching controversial um, history in the Republic of Moldova, how you teach history after communism. And in Moldova, the debates and controversies centered around who is a Moldovan, issues about the Moldovan nation, very different than some of the controversies we've been talking about with regards to climate or sex education. My current work is in Northern Ireland, where a lot of con most controversies also hinge on the nation and who and what is Northern Ireland. Um, and we know from research outside of the United States that when there is a neutral history taught in a classroom or when controversial histories or subjects are avoided, young people will turn to their family associations and their communities, which in turn will reinforce stereotypes, which will shape young people's opinions about the other, um, about histories. We know this from research in Northern Ireland. We know this from Guatemala, where it's also been done in Lebanon. And so it matters in divided societies, deeply divided societies, where, where children might live in, as John was mentioning, in our own, in the states as well, where they might live in like-minded communities, where the school might be the only place where they're exposed to a different opinion, where their teacher might be the only adult in their life or, or one of the only adults that's giving them an alternative viewpoint. And so most of us agree, I think, on this panel that young people should have a diversity of viewpoints. So teaching controversial subjects, especially with regards to history, is important. So that's the first point I wanted to bring up. And the second point, I have three points total, not too many, um, is that teachers matter. All of my work is on teachers. And John and Ashley have touched on the importance of teacher preparation, teacher training, giving teachers the knowledge and the skills to tackle controversial subjects in the classroom. But teachers are really complex individuals, like all of us, they bring lived experiences to the classroom. They bring contradictory viewpoints. And one thing that I want us to get past in thinking about teachers and what teachers need is to think beyond these tropes that teachers don't have time in their school day to teach controversial subjects. Another trope is teachers have to teach to the test. Um, another trope is, oh, they don't have enough training. These are all true, right? I, I don't deny that these are real reasons 
for avoiding controversy, but there could also be much deeper underlying reasons, such as perhaps teachers just hasn't, haven't simply reconciled these controversial issues for themselves outside of the classroom, right? Perhaps they have not processed traumatic or, and I'm specific in my work talking about post-conflict context, have not processed traumatic events to talk about that in the classroom. One of my underlying questions in Northern Ireland is how do teachers teach about peace and justice if they have never experienced it? Right? Mm -hmm. So teachers' biographies matter. They are complex people like all of us. They're not a homogenous block. We can't just plop a teacher into a workshop on teaching controversial issues and think that he or she will be prepared in the classroom to take that on. I think we need a better way of approaching teacher education that helps teachers process these issues, perhaps are intellectually engaged in these issues. They're more confident in talking about them and more willing to address them. Um, and related to that as well is that these are emotional issues. And my colleague who's here in the audience, Cynthia Miller Idris, who works on extremism in education, we're often talking about this. Controversial subjects are emotional today. And yet the ways in which we want to teach them are so clinical, right? Again, teachers are not widgets. They can't go to a workshop and have some you know, sample lesson plans and talk it out and think that they can replicate that in the classroom when these topics are really emotional. So I'm thinking that, or I'm posing to you, that maybe we need to really rethink how we approach controversial subjects in the classroom. Or is there perhaps a more appropriate way to bring this up that helps students and teachers deal with emotions in a thoughtful and respectful way? And John brings up in his book that oftentimes teachers avoid controversial subjects because they're, they're fearful of explosive classroom discussions, right? But like, let's get at that, right? How can we rethink, how can we create or develop a way in which teachers are able to navigate that for themselves and for their students? And so John also writes in his book, you have a nice sentence about teachers being at the intersection of policy, parents, and students, right? But not, let's not forget the teachers themselves might have a lot of intersecting ideas and, um, and, and lived experiences that they're working through. So those are my three points that I hope to contribute to the conversation today. Thank you very much. Neil? Uh, well, first, thanks, everybody, for participating in the panel. And I like the three-point uh, way you organize that, so I'll give three points, too. Great. Um, and I, I want to first of all say that I, I'm totally sympathetic to this sort of conundrum that public schools are in about how do you handle hot topics. But I think that public schooling sort of inherently is a bad education vehicle to deal with these sorts of problems. Um, so let me just lay out these three points really quickly and then we'll get hopefully to lots of question and answers. First of all, I think it's actually uh, almost impossible to expect that Public schools, especially if they have diverse students, are really going to wade into these issues, as John mentioned. You know, if you look at Horace Mann, he recognized the sort of uh, the inherent problem of this and the threat it was to the idea of public schools. Uh, and he exhorted public schools to say, steer clear of political controversy. <coughs> Let's only teach sort of a what you might call lowest common denominator Protestantism because we want to alienate or upset as few people as possible. So he recognized how inherently difficult it would be to have this sort of system that he wanted, a common school system when people disagreed about things. And you can go sort of now to the present day and we, we continue to have controversy as sort of a constant reality, but maybe even bigger than that is avoiding controversy. So Berkman and Plutcher, two um, 
political scientist and at Penn State uh, wrote a book, came out in uh, 2010, called Evolution and Creationism and the Battle of, to Control America's Schools. And if you know, you know your Scopes Monkey, if you've read Inherit the Wind, you know that evolution and creationism is a major controversial issue and has been for almost a century at least now. Well, what they found was two-thirds of biology teachers, high school, public school biology teachers that they surveyed, basically soft-pedal or completely avoid evolution. And they do it uh, in many cases because they are trying to avoid <coughs> conflict. They, it makes their job, if nothing else, a lot harder if people are sort of angry with each other. And they sure don't want to hear from parents on either side who go to the principal and say, what is this teacher teaching? And so it seems that, at least in part to dodge controversy, they sort of miss this really fundamental scientific issue. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we want peace. Um, uh, and I think in, in a diverse society, sometimes the easiest way to get peace is just to say, let's, let's not talk about the things that we disagree about. Uh, and then there's a question about, you know, we want teachers ideally to deal with all sorts, to, to provide diverse viewpoints to students so they can make their own decisions. But how do you really do that in practice? And Alexander Michael John, who, who's quoted in your book, uh, he noted in his famous 1938 speech about uh, free speech and public schools, he said, we shouldn't ask, shall we have any communists on our faculties? But, he said, how can we get enough communists to give proper expression of a view which runs counter the general trend of habit, emotion, interest, or the community at large? And his point was, was largely, if you want viewpoints represented, the way to do it is really to have people who believe in those things be the ones who are presenting it to students, because they're the ones who are going to give it the most rigorous presentation. But think about the difficulty of that. You know, today, maybe the problem isn't we don't have enough communists on our faculty. Maybe it's that some districts, how do you get enough evangelical Christians? Or how do you get enough transgendered faculty? How do you get enough gun toters? Or how do you get enough people who want to ban guns? Or make America great again? Or how, how do you get enough immigrants? Or even how do you get enough libertarians on your faculty? And the list sort of goes on, and it becomes kind of an impossible game of balancing. I mean, I can't imagine any local school board that comes up with an algorithm and able to then also hire the people so they get the exact right balance of every issue to represent it. The second point is, it's kind of a prudent defense not to have controversial issues topic, uh, tackled in public schools. Now, I don't think that most educators are, are after mind control. I mean, that's pretty sinister to say, oh, we want to we shape the next generation to think as we do. But that doesn't mean no educators have that, that goal. Uh, and you can look historically, and of course, Dictators and bad people often use schools as a way to try and shape society in a way that they wanted it to work in their country in a way that was most friendly to them. Again, I don't think that's most people. But you can also look at kind of well-meaning social reformers. And so there was an influential progressive educator named George Counts, who you may have heard of, and he declared in his famous Dare the Schools Build a New Social Order in 1932, he said, quote, if progressive education is to be genuinely progressive, it must face squarely and courageously every social issue, come to grips with life in all its stark reality, establish an organic relation with the community, develop a realistic and comprehensive theory of welfare, fashion a compelling vision of human destiny, and become less frightened than it is today at the bogeys of imposition and indoctrination. Uh, and what did Counts think that progressive educators need to 
inculcate democratic collectivism, where these were terms he used, which essentially, at least from my reading, seemed like socialism. And he thought it was the job of educators to consciously move schools in that direction. So while I don't think most educators want to do that, people are rightfully have their antenna up and say every once in a while, but is this something we should be concerned about? Uh, it's also prudent defense, I think, against sort of arrogance and, and misinformation that we are all inclined to have. I mean, we tend to assume that we are right, and if we think something's right, well, then it's just right. And we'll either defend it out of ignorance because we don't know any better or self-interest because- That's a ridiculous mark, Neil. <laughs> you getting my fidget spinner out. <laughs> exactly. Um, in any of that, see, now I lost my place. But, right. but I, can, I can pick back up. He's trying to do. So, I mean, they'll defend it out of ignorance or self-interest because I mean, nobody wants to be shown that they're wrong or admit they're wrong. I never admit I'm wrong. I never am. But I mean, and theoretically, I might have to someday. But see, nuance is tough, and this is another problem. So uh, Jonathan's book, and we're all sort of gleaning from your book. It, this is not just about your book, but it says the following is beyond dispute. Quote, global warming is primarily caused by human activity, especially through the burning of fossil fuels that emit greenhouse gases. So I said I'm not a climatologist, but I know an expert who is. And so Cato has an in-house climatologist named Pat Michaels. Uh, and I said, well, is this an indisputable fact? And he said, he didn't disagree that, there, that there's climate change and humans are causing it, and they're a big part of it. But he said the second warming of the 20th century, which began around 1976, is likely to have a strong greenhouse gas component. But there are also other significant factors involved. Then he says, importantly, he said there was warming before the 20th century of the same magnitude as detected between 1976 and 1998 that could not be caused by carbon dioxide. So... When, when we say that this is something experts agree, that global warming is primarily caused by human activity, especially through the burning of fossil fuels that emit greenhouse gases, there's a whole lot more nuance in there that it's very easy for people to miss, especially if they're not those experts. Finally, is number three, is this is a nation that is fundamentally rooted in liberty. That's the fundamental good, right? The De Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think no matter what the utilitarian arguments are for trying to have public schools handle controversial issues, I think any government control of a debate kind of violates liberty, even, I think, if totally unintentionally. I don't think most people say, well, I'm going to just shunt aside liberty because I think this is too imp important for people to debate. But fundamentally, I think... If somebody in authority in government gets to decide what is or is not beyond debate and how the debate should go, then those are essentially, you know, teachers in public schools are working for the government. They are, in a way, agents of the government. And if they control those things, then the government is having a significant say in what is debated and how it's debated. And I think that begins to curb on the fundamental value of American life, which is liberty. And with that... Thank you all. Um, a really a wide discussion. Um, so what I think we're going to do is I'm going to make just a few quick points. I, I had planned to ask some questions, but I think it would, I'm just going to make my three points because they had their three points. Um, so I'm going to make a couple quick thoughts that I had listening to everybody, and then I'm just going to open it up and let's let's have a lot of a lot of conversation. Um, as, as a reporter, you know, I go into, and I have for years, gone into a lot of schools, and 
I think somebody who doesn't really know what goes on in schools could listen to this and think nobody talks about controversial things because everybody's so scared of them. There is a lot of, a lot of uh, fear among teachers. It's true, but there are a lot of discussions. Some of them go well, some of them don't go well. There are subjects teachers can't avoid. If they're teaching science, they have to teach about climate change. They have to teach about evolution. It's true that some of them try to avoid it, but, on, but many of these things um, are discussed in school. And, and one of the, one of the uh, points that Elizabeth made is that teachers need to be better trained to be able to do these kinds of things is probably true. Um, I also think that uh, Jonathan noted that for him a controversy is the um, is, is when there's real discussion among the most informed people. Well, I think when you talk about controversies, one of them is who's informed, who, who is considered to be the most informed people. My people might not, my, the people I consider informed might not be the people Neil considers informed. Um, so that, I think, contributes to um, the difficulty in having some of these debates at a regular tenor. Um, and... Um, Neil said that he thought that uh, public schools were not, how did you phrase that? Not a good vehicle, not a good. Yeah, that sounds better. Not, that sounds better. Yeah, vehicle, not a good vehicle to have these kinds of debates. And I honestly don't really understand that. Um, I don't know that private schools would be bet any, any better. I mean, do you mean it in terms of public versus private? Or do you mean it the way public schools are set up? Well, I think that because public schools are intended to encompass very diverse populations, you're essentially guaranteeing that you're going to have, and it hasn't always worked out this way because, mm -hmm. as Jonathan said, they've often been very local. But the idea is, well, we're going to take diverse people and sort of in some way or another make them common, teach them something common. But you have a much greater chance of having people who disagree if you are sort of requiring diverse people to all come under one umbrella, which means you greatly increase the chance of people saying, this is too controversial to talk about. So one of the things that we've seen is there's been research on teaching civic values um, and just historical knowledge, but also you know, what you know about civics, whether or not you volunteer in your community, and what they, a lot of that research has found, and uh, Patrick Wolf at the University of Arkansas sort of summarized it, schools of choice seem to do a better job with that, and it's possible I don't think it's ever been proven, but it's possible they do a better job of that because if people agree on what the school is teaching that they enter, then they can agree on what the curriculum is, and then you can have a much more rigorous curriculum. You can probably even have much more rigorous debates because you say, look, we agree that these are the values that are important, and maybe in a way that becomes safe for people to say, so let's talk about other views of this, understanding that we think this is right. Now, I would not say that this is proven empirically in any way. Well, that was but, that's where I was going to go. I was going to say, you see, your informed people on that would not be my informed people on that. I'm not sure that there is a research base that says that schools of choice do a better de, uh, better job creating civic-minded um, civic citizens. Right. I've also, almost it almost sounds to me like you're saying that schools should be communities of like-minded people because then it's easier to have a debate because it's too hard if everybody's diverse. But I could be wrong, and he can um, explain that more as you ask questions. I so, think Ashley wanted to say oh, something. Oh, sure. Oh, I, just, I just wanted to just briefly respond to, to that. I, I think there is actually a fairly robust scholarly 
a body of evidence internationally and nationally that schools that have a strong school culture, which tend, to, I mean, in many, in many countries, this would be a government-funded Catholic school or a government-funded Jewish school or a charter school. It's not to limit private versus public, but schools that have a strong normative culture do tend to have better civic outcomes. They do tend to ha produce students who have a stronger civic identity. In most cases, tolerance for the other, and in most cases, more capacity, civic capacities. The mechanisms why that is so are not, there's no, I don't believe any agreement in the scholarly community about why that is so. And I, and I also do want to push back a little bit on what what you said, Neil, about public schools can't do this, and that there are, if you're, if you're talking about the knowledge of how different people believe and debating it, there are many public schools in this country that can and do and, and train teachers to have these debates. And certainly they're not inculcating their own view, but they are certainly gathering the tools to, to have these debates. And in many countries, state schools and religious schools are required to teach religion and ethics across the curriculum, across the grade span. So, you know, I'm not sure it's a public-private thing, I'm saying. Okay, we're gonna open it up. I'm, I am just now gonna make my fourth point. Because, um, I actually think when you say that other countries do a better job creating civic-minded people, um, with a, I think you said, with a tolerance for the other. I actually think that there's probably no other country in the world that has more tolerance for the other than, than the United States. As, as whether, whatever you think of the public schools and the private schools and the schools of choice, I think that this, this experiment in diversity, while it has enormous problems, still has created something that we don't see anywhere else. Who's got, somebody had their hand up. Yes, sir. Yes. We got two microphones, so, so just wait till one of them gets to you. It's, it seems to me that all of this is kind of predicated on having national, uh, having public education, and the discussion sort of assumes that we're talking all the time. Except Neil, you know, obviously made a point otherwise. But uh, I ask you, uh, uh, with that in the in line, with that as the background, why, why, who is going to define what is an educated person? Who is going to define what's controversial? In other words, it's hard enough. These concepts are so nebulous, and now you're, and then you have to ask yourself, who is it that makes these decisions? And I'm suggesting that you've made a great case without knowing it for having only private education, oh. because then you have, because then you have the 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 parent and the in each each parent and his child making these decisions. And you get, if you go to thousands of schools, you know, people will pick out the school that they want to discuss diverse, or the ones who don't want to discuss these diverse issues will go to another school, or they want a particular issue. That's a form of diversity that's actually better than trying to put everything in forcing everybody to have to discuss these things. That's, that's all I have to say. Jonathan, you want to respond? Well, look, I would just say um, I, I, I feel 
quite badly if what you took away from my talk was that I don't support public education or that I was making a brief against it. I mean, I, I am. I think you were, were trying to make yes, a but without knowing that. Right, right, right. You've made the case the other way for me. See, um, I really appreciate the question, but I have a very different perspective. And my perspective is, is that, you know, we're up here talking about the values, you know, that a school transmits, right? Or the culture that it transmits. For us to be a nation, we actually do need a shared set of national values. We really do. You know, when I give my pitch for debate in schools, it's quite common that I'll get a question from the audience that will say something like, look, you know, this is just way too relativistic. You know, um, uh, you can't debate everything and you shouldn't and um, you're gonna undermine <laughs> kind of the idea of truth. And I would say actually there's nothing relativistic about it because the very demand for debate actually implies a set of shared values that are in no sense relativistic about tolerance, about reason, about deliberation. These are probably not natural aptitudes. Nobody comes out of the womb <laughs> saying, you know, well, I'm gonna listen to everything you say, and even if I disagree, you know, I won't denigrate or kill you, you know, well. Those are actually learned ideas, and they are at the heart of our democracy. And I say our with a capital O, all of us. And we need public schools to promote the shared values that allow us to deliberate across our differences. Well, we probably have to go to... That's an ideal. Right. Yeah. Let's let's um, let's uh, um, let's let's move on. Can I just say something? Yes. About that? And sure. maybe I'll say what he wanted to say, since he said what I wanted to say. Um, but I, the the fundamental problem there is who gets to decide what those national values are that we all share and that are taught in the schools, and it becomes sort of a cycle, right? Of if we, which you've talked about, which if we don't agree, right, or we disagree, how does democratic control lead to something that we want? What if we don't want that? Right, right. You need Neil. I think you just need a set of shared ground rules, um, ground rules for the conduct of the debate. And I'll be honest, I don't think it's rocket science. I think most reasonable people agree about what those ground rules are. I mean, we're observing them right now. You know, I don't see the world the way you do, but I have respect for what you say and do. And I'm trying to understand your perspective in the context of debating it and disagreeing with it. You know, um, I don't think that that's really that controversial. You know, I think most reasonable people agree with it. What we don't have is, um, uh, a public school system that has trained people, and I would even say socialized people, to do this in schools. You know, I think we have a much better handle on the kind of ground rules and the values that attach to them than we do about how to institutionalize them. Yes, ma'am, back there. You, yes. <laughs> you get one. <laughs> I know. I, I, thank you. Um, if if you're if you're defined well, let, let's start with the one that I was going to ask earlier, Elizabeth. You mentioned that teachers are not well trained, and we know that many of them are, many of them aren't. There are areas that in, where 
training is lacking. When we look at teaching as an occupation, what are the incentives for teachers? And then they have the controversial issues that are being abdicated by the family circumstances to the teachers who are then supposed to be teaching not only the academic programs, the controversial issues, but the civic behavior. Right. Um, great. Such a nice question. And I do want to. I do want to preface that I don't want to make a blanket blanket statement that teachers are not well trained. As I think we all, many of us agree, teachers are not well trained in tackling controversial subjects in the classroom. And it's variable all over the world, right? And your question about incentives is a really good one, right? So why would a teacher want to do this? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be uncomfortable. Students might get out of control. They might not, she might not be, he or she might not be able to get the material in that they'll be tested on later. So I think, I think that's a really good question. I don't have a firm answer for you. But I do work with teachers. You know, my research is spending a lot of time with teachers, talking to them, being in their classroom, being with them in the teacher's lounge, spending time with them outside of school. And I think for many teachers, they genuinely enjoy their job, right? And so the incentive is it's, it's a, a community I want to build in my classroom. An incentive is we can have a strong community that we are all enjoying being here if we're not afraid to talk about some of these questions. I mean, I think that's my gut reaction from the research I've done from the teachers I've talked to. Like their incentive would be like, this would make my classroom a better place for all of us. I might enjoy it more as well teaching. I, I, um, I'm not a teacher, I'm a journalist, but I talked to, and I've talked to teachers for decades. And teachers know that having classroom discussions is one of the best ways to keep kids focused, engaged, Kids like to, mm -hmm. to express their own opinions, and, and, a, and a thoughtful teacher, and there are many thoughtful teachers out there. Of course, there are some, uh, some who aren't, but when you're talking about three, four million people doing the same thing, of course, you'll have a variety of, of, of ability. But teachers know that that kind of debate is, is one of the best ways to teach. So their incentive is that that's a best practice. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, please, yeah, talk into the mic, thanks. Historically, the job of the teacher was to present facts to the students. But as you've been discussing, the subject of controversy, how to, how to provide an argument, how to respectfully disagree with an argument, should those be taught in separate classes, those subjects, rather than by a teacher trying to teach history or English or social studies? I, I, don't, I, don't, think it, I don't think you can separate them out from... from the basic curriculum. Oh, it's not like, let's talk about this controversy, let's talk about this controversy. If you're in politics, you're going to talk about, about Trump. If you're in government, you're going to talk about the Civil War and slavery. If you're in science, you're going to talk about climate change. Um, if you're in health, you're going to talk about sex ed. So I don't know that it gets differentiated that way. Anybody else have? Well, Valerie, I wanted to jump in, though, in the sense that I think it does in a sense. I think some specific teachers are burdened with this task more than others, right? Specifically, civics, government teachers, history, science teachers. But think about art, right? Why there could be so many great discussions art teachers could have. Um, literature is another place, great conversations. Most 11th graders in the United States take American Lit in 11th grade. And so I would like to see it infused across the curriculum and teachers sharing this burden. It's unfair that some teachers shoulder, I think, a heavier burden for controversial subjects than others. Yes, sir. 
Uh, such a great discussion. Uh, I was a teacher for many years in California, and I just wanted to point out a couple of things and a question attached to this. So I taught uh, junior English as well, and I find that most of the time it's at the high school level we make space for controversial topics to be discussed. With the Common Core Standards, one of the new standards that was speaking and listening one was about having civil democratic discussions, right? And so what we discovered is if you go down to the kindergarten level of that standard, it says, <laughs> follow agreed upon rules for discussion, such as listening to others and taking turns speaking about the topics, right? So I like the way that was sort of brought down. So I'm wondering, this is to your point, I think, John, about the ways that how do you build the skills around civic dialogue? It's about taking turns and listening to each other with care. So there's ways that this is built in now. But I'm wondering if you have thoughts on what is the appropriate age? Are there times when this shouldn't be talked about? You know, do we have a consensus on when it's okay to start bringing controversy into the classroom? Hmm. Well, I, I, I would like <coughs> to speak to the international perspective, which is that most, many democratic school systems require comparative religion and ethics starting in elementary school. And it's not that they everyone jumps in with, let's have a controversy. It's, we believe different things. What is it, what is it, how is it to be an observant Jew? How is it to be a Sikh? You know, and very basic conversations. And those build up to the ethical dilemmas and so on. So it's built into the structure of the school. And I think that, um, I, I think that the, the end result of that is that you have a teaching profession who have also passed through this. And so they, they're more equipped to carry it through the different specialties when they're teaching. Right. And also, oh, go ahead. No, thanks. Um, and also, I mean, look, I think Christian's question is an excellent one. And developmental level definitely matters here. Mm -hmm. And it's complicated because it doesn't always track with age, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, you know, I mean, I have senior colleagues that still act like little kids, you know. Um, so, you know, um, I mean, to take, to take a more serious example, right, I mean, uh, on, on the third Thursday of uh, every November in the United States, um, you know, we, we teach little kids that, um, that there was this great interracial love-in in Plymouth Colony, mm -hmm. right, you know. Um, uh, and the Indians helped the settlers, and they had this great feast. Um, and we typically leave it at that. Now, you know, it turns out that, of course, that isn't actually what happened, and that the year after that, that, the, that Miles Standish and his band, you know, they cut off the head of the, the chief of the Wampanoag Indians and put her on a stake outside of Plymouth Fort. Um, do we tell that to six-year-olds? I don't think so. And the reason is I don't think that with very rare exceptions, most six-year-olds have the kind of intellectual and cognitive skills to process it. Um, but the real problem is we actually treat middle and high schoolers like six-year-olds. Great. Um, uh, because we don't let them in on this little secret, right? I mean, just think of the fact that the person that wrote the Declaration of Independence um, fathered children by a human being that he owned. This is no longer a subject of debate. Right, the most informed people all agree about this. In this country. Again, yes. <laughs> Again, I do not believe that a six-year-old has to be exposed to that. Um, but I think it is an absolute tragedy that middle school and high schoolers are not exposed to that. That's a fundamental fact about our national DNA. And we actually treat adolescents like six-year-olds by shielding them from it. There's also the issue of whether you tell the six-year-old lies or about what they're going to later learn, which is really a bad idea. Um, 
or how you how you phrase it. And then there's subjects, yeah, as Jonathan said, there's some subjects that just don't lend themselves. Yes, ma'am, back there. Thank you all so much. So um, my name is Rachel, and I was a high, I was a high school and middle school teacher for ten years, um, and I worked in a variety of places, Northeast Indiana and Austin, Texas, and so I had a lot of opportunity to deal with a lot of very diverse students. Um, I, I'm wondering the question that came up for me is: Is this an incommensurable problem? If, as Dr. Zimmerman said, the institution wasn't set up for controversial topics, are we really? I'm concerned about the, the onus put on teachers for this because I feel it really is a fundamental systemic change if you want controversial subjects to be at the core or even a, a, a large part of what you do in the classroom. So I'm, I'm curious about whether you see this as an incommensurable if you're asking for a very large change. And then secondly, I wanted to point out to Dr. Zimmerman, um, if, you, if you've never heard of philosophy for children or, or the, the philosophy of putting very complex subjects in front of children or Socratic education, that's what I used to deal with controversial subjects in my classroom with Socratic pedagogy and original source documents. I'm wondering if you have any other resources or scholars for teacher training in this area that you'd like to share with us, those of you that, that spoke of teacher training. Before you do, could I ask you, you said you were a history teacher? I was, a, I was, I was highly qualified in all subject areas, so I taught everything. So did, did you, tell us about a subject that you had this kind of conversation with in class. So I taught in rural Northeast Indiana at a farm school and I was the science teacher. And? <laughs> and my classroom in order to study genetics because we had a farm so we were looking at eggs and chickens and we had to study genetics in order to understand how they formed. Um, we had a conversation about what the definition of theology versus biology is hmm. and looking as each as a science. And so that's an example of where before mm -hmm. I preface the entire unit with that question or um, what other ones? Uh, oh, when I taught medieval history. We read uh, the Crusades through Arab eyes in addition to some of the historical documents from the Christian Crusaders. So it's all about, for me, the greatest way that I could do that was introduce original sources from the time, documents so that students could investigate the ideas as they were presented mm -hmm. by the people in the time and discuss the ideas as, uh, in the documents as opposed to conflict with one another. It kind of distances them emotionally, as you mentioned, from their current process, but still allows you to have really in-depth conversations. Thank you. You, you know, I, I, uh, I think we should defer the question about sources to Jim Lowen, who wrote Lies My Teacher Told Me and many other great books. He's the expert on lying. Um, I, I, let me just say, though, something about your comment about onus on teachers, which I really appreciate. I want to emphasize that I'm not blaming teachers for any of this. Like, what's your first name again? Rachel, this is on us. I mean, us as Americans, you know, not on teachers. Another theme in my book is um, professors, starting around mid-century, started to criticize teachers in this highly gendered language, uh, sissies, um, scaredy cats. Um, you know, show some backbone, take some risks. Look, we were talking about this this morning. I'm a full professor at a big research university. The kind of things that would get me fired are so bad I can't even say, okay? For me to, um, you know, tell teachers to take some risks is way too precious. I understand both the pressures they're under and sometimes the risks they have to incur. 
Um, so this is not about teachers at all. It's about us as a nation, and I would go even further, us as a nation leveraging our historical advantages. That's the way I would put it, right? All the great pedagogy that you just described, there are a lot of countries in the world where you couldn't do that, right? Um, and I think all of us have, have an inadequate appreciation for that. In 2004, I was asked to go to Rwanda because it was the 10th anniversary of the genocide. Um, and after the genocide, they stopped teaching history. This is not uncommon during these kind of national traumas. The same thing happened when the Soviet Union imploded. Um, and because I'm such an expert on East Africa, which by the way, I am not, okay, they asked me to go as part of a team to advise the education ministry. Well, I, even though I'm not an expert, I tried to do due diligence and I spent about a week reading about the genocide and I discovered, lo and behold, that equally, as, as best I could tell, reasonable and um, good-willed people disagreed profoundly about the origins and the meaning of the genocide. So when I get to Rwanda, we go to this lovely dinner with the Minister of Education, who, by the way, was a war hero. I mean, he was one of these Tutsis that had been exiled from Uganda, came, to Uganda, came in with Paul Kagame to end this genocide. And very delightful gentleman. Um, and uh, you know, I'm having wine with him, and I say, look, we know that people disagree about this. They disagree profoundly. Why not let the kids in on that secret? Say, these are the different theories of the genocide. And he just smiled them and he said, sir, then we would have another genocide. And I'm not saying that he was wrong. Again, I don't know enough about the history of the culture, but it did give me tremendous insight into the incredible advantages that we have here. <coughs> Our operating system, I call it OS 1787, it's incredibly strong. Um, we've had one which is remarkable. Um, uh, and it gives us an incredible opportunity, is the way I look at it, to engage in these sorts of activities. And we all have to remember how fortunate we are. And many, oh sure, go ahead. Oh yeah, I just wanna, uh, I think here's an important point in that where if we talk about public schools, it's hard to put the onus on teachers because they're supposed to be democratic, democratically controlled. And yes. the main mechanism for democratic control is the school board. So it seems that it's really the onus is on a school board to decide what are the policies that this school has. How do we treat the teachers? And, and I think we shouldn't be speaking too much about teachers and what they should be doing. If we're going to accept this democratic control system, we say it's school boards that need to be setting these policies. Um, also right, but, but Neil, the great irony, and to me the tragic one, is that many of the school boards have policies openly embracing the teaching of controversial issues. It's just there's this enormous disconnect between those policies and what, well, that, what mostly occurs. And, and so it seems to me then the onus is on the school board to try and make sure the policies they have get implemented. But of course right. that is very hard when you're right. talking about you have diverse people and you're trying to make them all happy and you may want to even get reelected depending on the school board. Yeah. So I just think that it's a very important point to recognize our system is supposed to be public schooling system, democratically controlled. and those the people on the school board are the ones supposed to do it. But I also thought this question about the age at which it's appropriate to bring up controversies, I wasn't gonna say anything about it, but it occurred to me that, well, there's disagreement about that too, right? Well, so yeah. we said <laughs> that the six-year-old is not ready to hear the truth about Thanksgiving. Uh, but then Valerie said, well, but it, shouldn't we be 
isn't it a question of when do you start teaching kids the truth? Yes. One of the things that that we is good about a decentralized system, a system where people have all sorts of choices, is there doesn't have to just be one answer. And so different people can choose. Maybe I think telling the truth to the six-year-old is the way to go. Others may say it's not developmentally appropriate. Not only then do we not have a lot of these conflicts, but we can see different models at work and then over time see which one works best, which may work well for some kids and not others. And that's a sort of another sort of basic reason that we want to have a decentralized system. And I think the, the most, the decentralized system that is best in that regard, that truly lets people choose all sorts of different ways of educating, is a system where you can choose a private school, it could be a charter school, but where you can choose in somewhere or another very autonomous schools um, yourself, rather than having somebody say, this is what will be taught. And should the public pay for those schools? Well, that's a good question. So I think that if we are going to say the public is going to pay for education, then yes. I mean, so the is way it in the public interest for the public to pay for schools to lie to kids? <laughs> well, that's a great question. The, the flip side is that, well, is it in the interest of the public school system to say, we'll pay for all schools that say six-year-olds shouldn't learn the truth about Thanksgiving? They don't, but they so don't. The but, way, that's not, but that is not, that's not a reality, and I ask my question first. Uh, well, but see, no, the, the, no, the question no, that, is that's really not an important what one. That's not what happens, actually, in schools. Schools are, you know, they're, they're locally run. A lot of schools aren't even run by school boards anymore because mayors have, been, have taken over. Um, it's, you, you paint this picture as if there's this a monolithic public school system, and it's not the way it is. It is the way it is, it's in that the fundamental the system is one in which some government controls the school. It may be the local government, yes. maybe state, maybe but national. There's enormous him, variation. Him, 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 him. But the model is still there. So I'm Jim Lowen. I wrote this book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, uh, which might be relevant to this conversation. We love it your is book. the best selling book in, in its field. Uh, I wanted to say that. About, with regard to school boards, um, uh, recently I was in northwestern Wisconsin where two adjacent school districts, one of them requires any teacher of U.S. history to have read my book as part of their preparation. And the next one over, if they think you have read my book, they fire you. <laughs> right? That's the diversity we have in the public schools. Of course, you are obliged pretty much, unless you pay a bunch of money, to go to the public school in the district you live in. On the other hand, with regard to private schools, exactly the same holds. And even with regard to <coughs> home schools, I've been to homeschooling conventions where almost everybody uses my book at home and others where, well, I haven't been to them because they would never invite me because they are just the opposite. <laughs> I'm talking about fundamentalist Christian homeschools that do not have any issue, uh, any interest in people debating anything, really, and certainly not the kinds of things that, that I'm talking about. Um, but my, my do, I have a, do I have a question? I better, hadn't I? Uh, yeah. I, I think a chapter of my book shows that if we treat high schoolers like six-year-olds, six which is exactly what we do, um, then they grow up with allegiance toward whatever it is we're teaching them, particularly toward the country, kind of. And this is why the first thing Castro did was get everybody literate. This is why the Nazis emphasized the Nazi youth groups and so on. And we do the same things. And my my... Uh, comment to you all is, uh, if you look at who supported the Vietnam War from the very beginning when almost everybody did, 
to the very end when almost nobody did, the dissenters were largely those with the least education. Mm -hmm. And the more education you had, from whether we're talking about high school versus grade school, or <coughs> PhD versus merely BA, the more education you had, the more you were in favor of the Vietnam War, no matter at what point during the Vietnam War we measured that. So I just submit to you, education as we usually do, it causes allegiance, it causes socialization, as we say in sociology. It does not cause thoughtful discourse. I could, I'm sorry. I would, just inter I would just interject there that I think that is one benefit to a pluralistic system that views public education as a diverse and responsive and flexible organism and a mosaic as opposed to one thing. It does create the space between the, the state and the individual for civil society, for people to be more than citizens. And I think the risk of having this, you know, the state run all of the schools and have them be uniform is exactly what happened in Germany, where all the, the teachers, the teachers were overwhelmingly in the Nazi Party because they were the state was their first and primary loyalty, and we don't want that. That's not healthy. And so, even a state school, I think, um, it's not inherent in a public school system. I think the public school system is not, we don't want it to be championing loyalty to the state above all, which is why these conversations are so important. This, this gentleman wants to make a point. Commenting slightly sideways on the gentleman's uh, remarks. I went to primary school in England. Yeah. Oh. I'm not sure. Yeah, we can't. The range, um, I went to <coughs> school huh. in England, and the real range of opinions was extremely small. <coughs> is that, excuse me, is Hold that on? on? Yeah. Well, um. Hold on, we'll do this one. <coughs> this is all being recorded, so we want to get every question as clearly as we can. Is this better? <laughs> okay, better. good. I went to a private school in England where the real range of opinions was extremely small. The Navy was good, Queen was good, a school fool was bad. And <laughs> um, in the course of the day, there were very few controversies. But we had a debating society, which was taken extremely seriously. And the subjects in the debating society were fairly, for us, outlandish. The Soviet Union should and will overwhelm the capitalist system, etc. Or the rise of Hitler was caused by English and French mistakes. And it was assumed that the person who took that side would argue it very skillfully and not believe a word of what he said. And this actually made debate very easy because your core convictions were not being assaulted. You kept your manners and you learned how to speak and analyze a statement. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. There, debate is, a big, is, is big in a lot of schools. There's, there's leagues. That, uh, you could make the argument all schools should, have, should, should, should teach through debate. I think that's a legitimate argument. Yes, sir. This is good stuff. Thank you. It's just the, the issue is just not the schools. It's gone to the universities. I presented a program about 
a curriculum on teaching pluralism. No school in the U.S. is teaching that. Pluralism in religion, pluralism in politics and society. At the Southern Methodist University, one of the big schools, I gave a lot of presentations. At the end, they, they really liked the program, but they said, this university is a Methodist university. We cannot tell, we cannot teach that all religions are equal. And uh, when will we really feel, believe, act, think, and start talking equal, although it is there in the Constitution? So that really pushed me back that I thought an educational institution would take that up and teach about it. Five years from now, there will not be a school, there will not be an auditorium, playground, restaurant, where you will not find people of different faiths, races, ethnicities, languages, not only playing and working together, but marrying together. This is bound to create a lot of conflicts. As a responsible society, if you don't start addressing those issues, we're gonna have some problems. And I think it is critical that we do. So what we did, we started on our own little institution to teach pluralism in religion, civil society, and um, uh, politics. So w what would you say about the equality? When will we, we talk about being equal, when will we practice equality? Anyone? I mean, I, I think pluralism, it, the assertion that all religions are the same is very different from saying, which, which is a stance and a commitment, and I take it you're not saying they're the same. That is a, that, that is a strain of pluralist philosophy, but you're saying pluralism they're all equal. You're respecting the otherness. Right, right, allowing deep difference. And I think that is what, what Jonathan's saying. I think that's really what we're all saying, which is deep difference is appropriate and necessary in a democracy. And how, but how do we prepare the next generation for that? That's... Just to, to add to that though, pluralism with deep difference, actually, I mean, I absolutely agree that we need to teach tolerance of this, mm -hmm. but you can also see where SMU or any sort of pluralist a group says, we are tolerant of others, but what we think is the best, we think it's the best. But and that's that's the difference between, that's the difference, excuse me for interrupting me, that's the difference between uh, acknowledging difference in belief and saying, I disagree with you, I flat out disagree with you, but you have the right to say it. It's the tolerance versus assent. Right, and so I was just gonna say maximum pluralism, maximum respect for pluralism is also allowing groups to say what we think is right is right yeah. and we don't interfere with their ability to form and say, look, this is what we think is right and we don't let them impose themselves on others and say, we think you're wrong, therefore we're going to make what you do illegal or beat you up or something like that. But I think sometimes there's a misconception that pluralism means everybody thinks everything is equal and the same, but real pluralism has to mean we can gather in groups and say, this is what we believe, and we think actually other people are wrong because we think what we think is right. And let me just add this, the Supreme Court has also affirmed that, that, that you know, Jehovah's Witnesses do not have to pledge of allegiance in the public schools. And in the, in the, the Supreme Court decisions reinforce this, that difference, ha freedom has to be about things that really matter. Mm -hmm. Any, who's next? Who would, yes, back there.
Hello. Um, I'm thinking back to when I was in 10th grade. I went to a private Catholic school, and uh, my AP American little. history teacher, the assigned essay topic was, why is Jimmy Carter the best, one of the best presidents of the 20th <laughs> century? <laughs> uh, talking about lies that our teachers tell us. And uh, I wrote, and I, I, I worked very hard on it, very well thought out about why he was one of the most undeserved Peace Prize winners, and I got a C, my only C. <laughs> so what I'm thinking about is, um, you brought up the First Amendment and free speech rights, and I'm obviously, I think that is probably one of the most important parts uh, that define us as a country. Uh, so what are the responsibilities of Obviously, this this teacher was exercising her her free speech to um, or her opinions. She also had five mounted pictures of FDR behind her, so I, I knew where her stance was. Um, <clears throat> so, where is the responsibility of teachers as far as um, I hate using the phrase "limit of free speech" because I really don't believe that there are any. But as far as a responsibility to to give all sides how do we i guess this was really mostly for you but how, how do we help teachers get to that point so we were actually talking about this at lunch earlier today and that's not uncommon john had some really great historical examples of essays like that through the history of american schools he's retelling us but i think you know you're touching on something that what i'm trying to get at as well right so how do we get teachers to be comfortable with difference, right? So if you are leading a lesson and, and your students come to a different opinion than you as the teacher, you need to be okay with that, right? And how do we get teachers to get to that point? I don't have an easy answer for you, but I think that goes back to my point of helping teachers process their lived experience and all the stuff they bring with them to the classroom. And also maybe helping teachers lose a little bit of that power, right? A little of that power over knowledge, a little bit of that control and helping teachers be okay with that. I don't have an easy answer, but I think it's, it's worth it. On the other hand, I was just going to say, you could argue that the, that essay is the equivalent of this gentleman's debate topic that is ridiculous, that may be ridiculous to some people, but that students have to learn how to think outside their comfort zone. Mm. You, could, you could argue that. Right, but the problem is with the C. Right. right? Yeah. Well, you don't I, know how I, maybe it was a C written. I don't know. Maybe you should have read it very well. It's possible. <laughs> right. Um, but, but look, you know, the, 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 uh, the question that you're asking was really the focus of Alexander Michael John's work, who came up earlier. And, you know, insofar as there's a hero in my book, that's who it is. I mean, nobody reads Michael John anymore, alas. Uh, but he was the leading civil libertarian of his time. And he had a couple aphorisms, which I love. The first one is, slaves can't teach freedom. So he felt actually teachers should be totally open about their political predilections because he says, look, if you're trying to model a certain kind of political behavior, you can't <coughs> pretend that you're above politics. That just doesn't make any sense. I wouldn't go as far as Michael Don to say that they're enjoined to share their opinion, but I certainly think based on their professional discretion, they should be allowed to. Now, the central check on all of this, and this gets to your free speech question, is to what end? And Michael John's other aphorism, which I love, it was that teachers shall be advocates, but they must never be propagandists. So if you love Jimmy Carter, you love Jimmy Carter, you know, and that's your right as a citizen, as an American, even as an educator. What you have no right to mm -hmm. do is to insist including via the grading system, that your students share that view of Jimmy Carter. 
Um, but unfortunately, we tend to meld these things. We tend to collapse mm -hmm. these distinctions, you know? And I would go even farther, and I think this gets to Lizzie's point. If you're not willing to let the students decide that they don't like Jimmy Carter, you've got to get yourself a new job. Um, not everyone has to be a school teacher. And your job is not to get them to like or to dislike Jimmy Carter. Your job is to, to provide them both the information and the skills, which are different but related, to come to their informed perspective on Jimmy Carter. And if you are not willing to lose, which is really what democracy is about, being, to, being willing to lose. Don't get me started on the not my president stuff. I go crazy. I hate it. All right? Uh, I loathe Trump, and I loathe the not my president stuff. He's my president. Um, because I believe in democracy. Um, so you've got to be willing to lose. And if you're not, you can't be a teacher. I just wanted to say, nobody who comes to a Cato Forum would ever have written a paper that deserved a C. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, you know, you could make the argument that teachers are in a superior role to students and that any teacher that expresses an opinion could, a, a student might think that they might do better if they agree with the teacher. Um, you don't want reporters revealing what they, what they know, uh, what they believe and how they vote. People think they do, but you know, very often they don't. Um, and, and so I think it's, open to, it's a really good debate about how much a teacher should tell about their personal views. How much time do we have, sir? We've got two minutes left. Two minutes. One more question. Yes. If you're fast, we can probably do one more after that. Okay. Thanks a lot. I'll try my best fast. to be fast. 20 seconds. So somebody up here said that a lot of these controversies rely on emotional and sort of, I would say, meta-ethical questions. So, how is a, does a school or is a, does a teacher, should they balance sort of having an open conversation about a contentious topic such as abortion with maybe a pro-life teacher or parent saying, this is murder, we shouldn't be discussing murder whatsoever in classrooms? The federal, I mean, there, there have been some court cases that essentially, you know, privilege the school district's decision on that. I mean, I, I don't know that there's any one right answer. I think it, it puts teachers in a pretty bad position. In a diverse society, though, right, we have some people who believe they're more absolutes and that a school should teach those moral absolutes. And I think if we have a plural society, then again, this is something that has to come down to school choice, to educational freedom. You may want that school that teaches there are moral absolutes. You may not agree that there are moral absolutes. We may disagree on what those moral absolutes are. But we need to allow different people who have different visions of education to freely choose and equally choose among educational options that are different. And teachers as well, for teachers, to find, yeah. for teachers to find communities that cohere with their pedagogy or their. One more? Yes. Well, this may open a can of worms for another panel, perhaps. But uh, given that at least several of you teach in higher education, I wonder if you could just comment on whether this matters, you know, does it, is, is there a difference um, uh, in higher education setting, particularly given the last year what's been happening around mm -hmm. uh, free speech and hate speech and the protest kind of cultures around speakers on campuses across the country? Well, the, the, the book I wrote previous to this one was about this subject, so I'll take the first cut here. Um, I, I, I think that, unfortunately, um, uh, at our elite schools, 
we have socialized people to avoid controversy. Um, and I understand why they're doing it. Look, if you got to campus, and the first thing you heard is that it's a very diverse place, and um, some people might be deeply injured by your speech, I think you're going to restrict your speech. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly would, you know. Um, uh, and, and I think that you're going to be more likely to communicate via the internet, um, via social media, um, rather than face-to-face. -face. Um, and I think, and in some ways, this cuts back to the question of teaching about abortion. Uh, I, th I think that, again, at our elite schools, and that's an important distinction, that there's been a kind of psycholog uh, psychologizing of politics that we're increasingly discussing politics through psychological idioms. Think of the whole language of triggering and of microaggressions. Um, and the problem with that language is it doesn't actually lend itself very well to political dialogue. Um, if you tell me you were microaggressed by something I said, I have exactly one thing to say in response. I'm sorry. I would never say you weren't. I can't look inside your soul. Um, I can't tell you your subjective emotional state. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I do think it's a kind of cul-de-sac, and I think that we've socialized people to kind of go into it. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'll say as a historian that I find both fascinating and troubling is that we've also reached a time in our elite schools where we're demanding, especially students, more administration rather than less. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the Port Huron Statement, which is sort of the classic... Um, text of student protest at the beginning of the 1960s, there's this very evocative language where Tom Hayden, who wrote the statement, says, we have to free ourselves from the administrative bureaucracy. Um, rest control from the administrative bureaucracy. Those were the language, mm -hmm. um, the words. And if you look at the speech of the first elected student speaker at Wellesley College graduation in 1969, Hillary Rodham, she celebrates the fact that they got rid of parietal rules about who could be in your room. They won a pass-fail option. They reduced the number of academic requirements. Now, no matter what you think about all of this, what it all expressed was a desire to have less administration and fewer rules. If you look at what's happening on our elite campuses now, most of the demands are for more rules, mm -hmm. um, more trainings, more academic requirements, more speech codes, more regulation of behavior. And this, I think, is hugely troubling for the socialization of our young people. Anyone else want to no. take a crack at it? All right. Thank you all very much for coming. Thank you all. I, this was a, I thought it was fabulous. Thank you.